0: Hi, this is Oliver. I'm Eleanor. And we're from The Present Group. It is March 18th, 2012, and we're here with Julia Goodman, our 20th artist.
1: Hi, Julia.
0: Hi, Eleanor.
1: (laughs) For those of you who aren't familiar with your work, can you describe it, and then in particular, your edition that you've made for The Present Group?
2: Sure. Um, I have been making handmade paper for about seven or eight years now. Um, and I started making paper in my backyard, um, just using a blender and window screens and um, junk mail that I gathered in my neighborhood. And I, that paper um, slowly became more and more sculptural over the course of five or six years. And uh, I, I've used a few different techniques like casting paper, so I would make a wood carving and then cast paper into it so that it would be more sculptural or like hanging concentric circles um, of handmade paper back in space and they slowly move with the wind or in response to somebody walking by. Um, I've continued to work with the cast paper and also done wheat pastings with handmade paper and I've documented them with photographs and so kind of been all around handmade paper and I've been studying the history of paper making slowly but surely over the course of the seven years and along that time period I became very aware of the time before paper or a time that existed before the technology was around to make paper readily available this is like a um, a piece of history called like pre-paper technologies or thinking about all the things that existed before paper a lot of my work is about Uh, or somewhat relates to scarcity or mortality or um, the idea of capturing a mark does that make something last last longer and so in thinking about that I was really interested in in the time before paper was like I said paper is readily available the main material that they were making before paper um, well two one is parchment and the other was papyrus and I was really interested in the process behind making papyrus, parchments made out of skinned goats or calves, so I wasn't ready to replicate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the papyrus, I was really interested in the in the idea of laminating a material and the pounding that went along with laminating that material and and harvesting that material directly from somewhere and so I wanted to replicate that in my stu- in my studio or And um, it's a technology that kind of, there's a lot of imagery in ancient Egyptian artwork of harvesting papyrus or of the papyrus plant, but there's not any imagery that I'm aware of people actually making the papyrus. And so I was interested in making that process visible again. Um, And fast forward, in making it visible again, I thought about the beets. There are other examples of, projects like small projects with um, fruit or different various fruit or vegetable papyrus um, and like pap- old paper making books from the 70s will be like a, a how to or something like that but with the papyrus with the beets I was excited because the stains would make the process visible
1: um, two questions about what you mm-hmm. were just saying you were talking about pounding mm-hmm. papyrus yeah. what what
2: is what, okay yeah that so I guess um I should differentiate between paper and papyrus. With paper you're taking a plant fiber or reusing a a textile and you are um, macerating those fibers so that you're not cutting them short but you're bruising them so they're opening them up and then you mix them with water. So you make this like slurry, like almost like a milkshake of pulp and you would dip a screen in it and as waters, coming out of that screen, all of those fibers are reconnecting into this complicated web kind of, the which is a sheet of, becomes a sheet of paper um, that you can only separate those fibers by tearing the paper you know um, with papyrus, you don't make a slurry, you don't make pulp, what you're doing is you're um, slin- thinly cutting material, and when it's at like a wet um at a wet point i think it's almost like there's like little suction cups or pores that are opening uh, are open on that material and then so i'm just putting down um layers of that material sliced thin with overlaps and then uh, all the points where it overlaps i apply pressure repeated pressure and it without any adhesives as it dries under pressure it is kind of self-laminating
1: what other fruits and vegetables what makes a good papyrus material
2: well I guess it depends on what you want to do with it so like in some ways these pieces like these pieces of papyrus would not work well for rolling up into scrolls but that's not my intention so um I mean the ideal papyrus I guess, from in ancient Egypt could have been rolled up into scrolls or could have been weighed down for heavy books um for me I'm more interested about the like the color um the shapes um so and and the stains that it leaves behind so I have and I'm not making these with the intentions of marking on I'm interested in making marks while I'm making them so if you ask me what makes a good piece of papyrus would be pretty different than somebody else from way back when but yeah
1: so you've talked recently just in our conversations Mm -hmm. you've talked a lot about throughout this process of making this series it was a good exercise for you oh yeah and so what did you mean by that
2: yeah um well I've been making I started making the beat papyrus um I guess I started thinking about about it in January of 2010 and then I made I've made it and I've so I've been making it pretty consistently since and I just had a show and for that show I made some larger pieces and um, I had installed the work for a while and really been able to see the work for the first time. Basically, when I'm making the beat papyrus, my studio becomes kind of a mess, and it's hard to see work in the studio. Like some people have, like a neat area that kind of functions as a fake gallery wall, and I don't have that in my studio, so I I kind of can't see the work after a while. So I just had a show, and some of the pieces were were bigger than than um, the pieces I'm sending out. And so, you know, when when a show ends and you're finally seeing the work, it's actually the perfect time to go back into your studio. Um, But it's also the perfect time, I realized, to do a lot of kind of quick sketches instead of committing to something huge, both in time and space. And so um, to go back to the Beat Papyrus with like a, a speed or... And a commitment to keeping the size small kind of made me see the shapes a little bit more clearly. And I was really more sensitive to the color instead of just trying to push for scale. Um, so it was a really great
0: exercise, actually. Um, Do you want to talk about color and how, you know, in the past you've been making paper out of junk mail and bed sheets. So it's been mostly grays and whites?
2: And- yeah. The, um, I actually had a great conversation with a friend of mine recently about color. And with the junk mail, I would color sort the paper. So the largest sculpture I made was made out of almost all blue junk mail. But the thing about junk mail or ink is that ink only sits on the surface of a paper. So by the time you rip it up, there's just like a thin, it's just a top coat, this thin, delicate top coat. The color doesn't it's not soaked all the way through. So by the time you kind of like mulch it and pulp it, it's become Mm grade. And with the bed sheets, um, I've been using most like old sheets that have been faded. A lot of them have been white or I have some blue and white ones or there might be patterns, but the colors all get mixed together. And so it it usually neutralizes itself. And with the beets, it's this crazy explosion of color because the color is the material and it bleeds out. Um, So I'm working with brighter colors than I've worked with in years. And I'm making different colors than I would have expected. Like, you know, traditional, like when most of us think about a beet, the first color that comes to mind is that reddish pink, totally rich. Um, And that's true, but there actually are a lot of different shades of that red. and, And depending on how thin I slice it, um, also determines kind of how that color reads. And then what I put next to it, there's like, so there's the color of one beet, and then let's say I put it next to a golden beet. Um, there's a bleed that happens between the two to make an orange. One of the most exciting things that I discovered in this round was that when I take the albino beet and put it next to a golden beet or a yellow beet um, without its pe- peel that... Um, it bleeds neon yellow when given the space so there's some neon yellow in these that I'm mm-hmm. super excited about but yeah i think that the color is through and through it is the material so it it kind of exp- it's in it's a more explosive color than i've had the chance to work with in in a very long time and it's really exciting mm.
0: are there other materials that you could that are as you know vibrant that you could work with? Yeah,
2: it's funny, cause like I, um, when I'm picking a material, I, I like like working with one material thoroughly. Oh, <laughs> and when I'm trying to pick a material, I like to feel like there's a synchronicity lining up or like all arrows point to using this material. So I don't pick materials that randomly. Um, so like, for example, with the beats, Um, I was excited about their staining. I'm Jewish, and I grew up with stories about borscht, and my my mom talks about how when my bubby, Julia, would make borscht for the family, how her hands would be stained for for days, Um, and the cutting boards would be stained. And then also the sculptures that I'd been making with handmade paper, concentric circles, have been reoccurring for a long time, and when I cut into the beets, those first cross slices, and there were concentric circles, I was very excited to see that again. And the other thing was that I had been dealing with, um, in some of my work, a quote had been reappearing, the um, red skies at night, sailors delight, red skies at morning, sailors take warning. And I noticed that when I made the, um, the all red or all pink beet papyrus, when the light shined through, it actually created this like light, this red shadow, pink shadow. That was really exciting. So I had all those things kind of triangulate or quadradulate or whatever. (laughs) And and that's how I worked with that. So now that I've been working with the beets and thinking about how light comes through it, I am, I'm really excited about the idea of these colors that grow underground, um, materials that grow underground, using materials that grow underground in ways um with opportunities for light to come through them. So like I'm getting ready to go to Hawaii and the taro root grows there. I've only eaten it once. I'm not that familiar with it, but I'm excited to explore it.
1: You talked about the transparency and how these are so beautiful against the you know with light coming through them mm-hmm. and also the sun, you know, makes the beets grow. Yeah. But it also ultimately will destroy these works if someone decides to display them on a window
2: with the work that i was making in with the concentric circles a lot of them were about looking up and that idea of um being aware of of the heavens above us and i was looking more towards the moon phases at, at the time it was also a period when i was mourning for my father and so i was looking at the jewish calendar and the moon cycle and timing that up with the with the mourn, Jewish mourning traditions, and, and it's on an 11-month cycle. And so I had been reading a lot about looking up, but within, knowing, that, knowing that looking up, there's a symmetrical action of looking down. But in a time of grief, I don't think I was really brave enough to be able to look down. I, I read this thing, I read an article by Yi Fui Tan in, in grad school called topophilia, and he talks about how in um, contemporary societies we're much more aware and concerned of just how our surroundings, our material surroundings, just like the, how we occupy the thin surface of the planet. And he said that in more ancient societies they had a vertical glance where they felt much more connected to the heavens, all the way down to the core of the earth. And when I lost my father, I felt really connected to the above looking up part, but I wasn't really in a space where I felt comfortable looking down. I just associated... What do you mean
1: by looking down?
2: Well, just thinking about below ground, I think I just associated that with death or with morbidity, mortality. It was just a little too soon to be willing to look down. And um, I you know growing up as kids we all know that photosynthesis that there's roots under the ground that they're getting the energy from the sun but something about this project and at this point in my life i'm kind of discovering that all over again maybe bringing a little bit more life experience to it than when i first learned about it when i was a kid and really thinking about that connection um, I also should say that I went in a cave for the first time this year. I went to the Oregon (laughs) Caves National Monument. And uh, I've just been thinking a lot, just totally fascinated with what's going on underground and all of the connections between above ground and um, with the beets. It's exciting to me to be using the part of the plant that grows below the surface. So to make a long story short, yes, the sun does challenge the existence of this material specifically the color i don't know that it will make the actual fibers break down faster but um and it's interesting i did an experiment and the, and i i thought that the color that would have faded the fastest would have been the red but actually in sun exposure it was the orangey yellow color that faded faster than the truer reds and pinks um it turns gray it didn't turn gray. It just kind of bleached out a little bit. Um, and, you know, in, in in most art viewing venues, like natural light is not allowed to shine directly onto artwork. Um, but I think, you know, there's different strategies for looking at the work. Um, but something special happens when sunlight shines straight through, for sure.
1: Well, speaking about how these are sort of ephemeral mm-hmm. in some ways and sort of what you were mentioning cycle of life like looking mm-hmm. up and looking down you know they come from the earth eventually they'll probably go back to the earth you know just mm-hmm. like we all do it seems like a lot of what you're making deals with fragility in some mm-hmm. way um you know a lot of your things are so beautiful but they're also so fragile and i'm always afraid to touch them you know <laughs> Well, I mean that yeah. happens with lots of artwork, but is that something you deliberately go after or is it just something that sort of happens with your process?
2: Yeah, I mean I've been making I made handmade paper for about 4 years before my father passed away. Um and after he passed away, I identified with the fragility of the paper or um the porousness of it. Um and after he died, I really could not imagine myself working with materials like concrete or metal. There's something about the when materials are harder than our fra- our bodies to me that kind of when that our surroundings um, seem so permanent and sturdy to me. Sometimes I think they trick us into um, not acknowledging how. Uh, you know our state of impermanence um and i don't think of it as a as a morbid thing again i just i you know i i that the materials i work with kind of confirm this experience i've had that we're not here forever to me is um important and i'm not necessarily my goal is not to make artwork that is going to be here f- forever i would it's just it's not my goal. And I do think that there, that, you know, on one hand the work is fragile, but on the other, I think people are always more careful with handling other people's work. Mm-hmm. And so I've actually been impressed with how durable the work is in some ways. It has like a leathery quality. Um, but it does have a skin like quality to it that I, I really like. and I'm excited that we're sending it out this way so that people really can. Mm-hmm. handle and experience um the material um and the material it does kind of breathe and absorb its surroundings so like in here in san francisco where it's kind of damp it takes on a leather a more leathery quality if it's sent to arizona, arizona. <laughs> um it might be a little drier there and a little bit more brittle but i think that's part of what makes the project exciting too mm-hmm. so
1: yeah. Let's step back a little. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe you could talk about how you got into making paper in the first place.
2: Okay. Um, Let's see. I was taking art classes at Santa Monica College at night while I was teaching high school. I got into art making through painting murals. And I loved working outside. But I never loved paint. Like it seems like good painters love paint. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just never loved it as a, you know, material. But I loved working outside, and I loved collaborating with people, and I loved f- both the combination, of working outside, it meant, f- you know, fresh air, and just that you're open to chance, like running into people, conversations that could be, that could strike up, and that different people could see the work that, you know, you you that weren't normally inside somewhere. Um, so, let's see, I went, I was making art, I, okay, wait, let me back up, sorry. So, with the murals, one thing about the murals was that they would oftentimes get covered up or start fading away, and there was something about that that really, um, it just felt so right to me, hmm. that they weren't protected, that they were exposed, that they were accessible, and so when I started making artwork I I really wanted the spirit of that experience in there but I you know nope not necessarily with paint and then I went on this camping trip like a backpacking trip at, at King's Canyon and I camped out with some friends who worked for the California Conservation Corps and they lived the lowest impact lifestyle I had ever seen and out there with them for four or five days and when I came back to the art studios I just saw so much waste in the in the studios I mean it was crazy and materials that I just didn't want to deal with anymore like foam core I don't know even like the acid baths and the printmaking studio I mean just things that I didn't want to be around I just didn't feel like I needed them and so I just kind of wanted to close the loop. I wanted to know where my material was coming from, and so I started making paper using recycled paper. And at first I wasn't even making paper, I was just making collages, but the pieces Mm. kept getting smaller and smaller. And I remember looking at my blender and thinking, well, and I remember (laughs) the first piece of paper I made was like, I experimented making paper on, I had like one section that was called puree, one section that was called ice crush, one section. I was so silly and I'd never seen anybody make paper before, but I just wanted the pieces to get smaller and smaller. I don't know. And my studio was, I was working out in my house. My kitchen was right there. Like sometimes, you know, Yeah things jump in the blender (laughs) you know I did soon I've only done it a few times with my kitchen blender that I eat out of I did get a separate blender very quickly for paper making so I mean I made do with just using a kitchen blender for like five years I mean I made a huge sculpture using a blender i burnt through a few engines i had to get a few different thrift store blenders but i don't mind if something takes time in that way you know and um i just i don't don't mind putting the effort the time in on that end of art making it's also like a time to to zone out and daydream and making the pulp um there's something really satisfying about getting covered in your material and kind of feeling like you're knee deep in it. Um, So, you know, it was a little noisy, but um, it was fun. Mm
1: -hmm. What about even before that, you you got your MFA from CCA, but Mm -hmm. your undergraduate work was not in art. No. Could you tell us what you
2: did study before and how that influenced your work? Yeah, well, um, I mean, when I was a kid, I always made art. and um, But in high school, I was in painting class for four years straight, but I was in painting class because I went to this, it was how I got out of Bible and PE by only taking art classes. I didn't have to go to Bible study. Um, and, um, and when it came time to go to college, I just, I didn't need to get out of Bible study anymore. <laughs> and I I I, don't, I just had different ambitions at the time, but I studied international relations and peace and justice studies, which are two interdisciplinary degrees, but it include like economics, Spanish, sociology of social movements class, psychology of conflict resolution, um, uh, peace pedagogy classes um, a lot of really amazing classes, um, and it, it is, in that course of study, I ended up in Chile studying murals. I, all of what I learned in college still informs the work that I'm making. I think about it, think about a lot, and I think that way of gathering information from multiple disciplines and kind of siphoning it down, that, um, still impacts me all the time but uh you know I didn't I didn't want to go into diplomacy and I didn't want to be researching and I I mean I wanted to be working directly with people and I realized too that I also want to be working with my hands and so I went the peace and justice studies and international um, relations route was kind of moving towards art education um, And then I decided that if I'm going to teach art, I should really, you know, practice what you preach. Or I want to really feel committed. See how having an art making practice could impact my life. And so that's kind of how I ended up making art. Did
1: you end up when you said you were teaching high school before? Were you teaching art?
2: No, I got the teaching job. I did a like an artist residence at this high school. Um, and that's artist residence in quotes because it kind of, we kind of made it up as we went. But um, and then the t- English teacher got into a car accident, and then I started subbing, and then I had a it was working out really well, and so they brought me on. So I taught English and social studies at a dropout recovery high school with a focus on GED prep and essay writing, and so. You know, in a, G, in a dropout recovery program, it would be such an amazing environment for art classes, but with kids balancing jobs, maybe babies, and other obligations, and with the resources so tight, it's one place where art classes don't exist. So I didn't really teach art. I tried to squeeze it in wherever I could, but it was easier with creative writing. That was more of an expressive outlet there. But I would teach them, and then at night, I would go home and make art in my kitchen or go take classes at Santa Monica College. So here I was like in an educational environment, completely lacking in art, and then on my time off, I would dive into my own art education.
0: You've been talking about, you know, how your background informs your work and, you know, you know a lot about the history of papermaking and how important is it for you that that comes through in the finished piece to to the viewer?
2: Oh, well, first of all, um, I have been studying the history of it, but I am by no means a paper historian. Like I have a very loose abstract poetic absorption of the facts. <laughs> like I it's been a, an introduction to me to like world history and everything like that, but I am still sorting out all the different time periods and and there are so many people out there that know way more than I do, including there's like papyrologists who are people who study papyrus. So um I just want to say that anything I say might be wrong and I feel like that's okay because <laughs> I'd like to be right. I have good intentions, but I am an artist. I'm not like um, a paper historian. So that said, um, <laughs> wait, what was the second part? I always feel like I have to tell people I might not be right. Oh, the interpretation if it comes through.
0: Yeah, or even the process. Yeah, or even the I, tr-
2: process. I, the, the, making the process visible to me is important. Part of it is from selfish experiences where I just i find when I look at artwork, I look for the artists like I want some kind of uh, by the time artwork gets to a gallery and it's just hung perfectly neatly like in the frame um sometimes that's not the most interesting state to see the work in and i'm i I want to know how it came about, how it came to be. And, and I don't need to know exactly, but any of these kind of linkages to the process or the environment it was made in, to me, is some oftentimes kind of a generous thing, and it, and it lets people into it. And I'm interested in giving that to people, so that, like, with the stains, that's important to me. But I don't need to do it so directly. Like, I think that there could... that sometimes people's readings uh, well I want to leave it open enough for there to be misreadings or different interpretations and and sometimes those are more interesting than somebody those to me are way more interesting than somebody regurgitating to me exactly what I did back Mm -hmm. you know but I am excited to like it is interesting to me for people to know that there was a time when paper didn't exist and to kind of call that into question. And it's not so much about paper. It's just about, you know, it's so easy to, when we're surrounded by so many materials, and it's so easy to kind of become numb to things. And I think when an art project or I mean, if anything that kind of reawakens our senses to our surroundings or reminds us of that actually these things were made or um, that they didn't fall out of the sky exactly as is I mean I think that there are a lot of things moving in, the, in that direction right now and I, I like the idea of my work falling in that broad under that broad umbrella I also think the idea of transparency is important to me. I don't necessarily think that mystery is the sexiest thing on the planet. The idea, you know, that if only when you don't know anything about where mm. it comes from. Um, but I think that transparency and then openness, the work itself is transparent in terms of light coming through, but transparency in terms of process is also important to me
1: the stains themselves sometimes do you you obviously think it's important and you want to show the process like you just said but also do you aesthetically do you sometimes get more attracted to the stains and like when you look at the stains what do you feel about them
2: yeah i mean they're interesting because like i really don't have control over them and I think that that's part of the thing that's really exciting to me is that that's exciting. So the stains, the bleed, sometimes the color transition is a little softer. Sometimes, sometimes the stains pick up the concentric circles in the beets. And, and also the other thing is the stains are, you know, bigger than the beet papyrus for two reasons. One, the stains bled out some, but the beet papyrus shrinks down. When it as it dries too, so I can't. It, there's that s- um, size discrepancy of the the stain moving out while the papyrus shrinks down, and I really like that in between space. And the other thing is, uh, you know, I mean, people have mentioned like the idea of stains, the idea of, um, you know, I'm not interested in perfect white surfaces. All, you know, I like the idea that these materials can pick up marks and that you know I there's something about getting things dirty or staining them or marking them that that makes things feel um, more real and more alive to me so can you can
1: you talk about the display system that you designed and what you we were thinking behind it
2: yeah so like I said um I've thought about a few different ways to show the beat papyrus, and it one way for it to work is to frame it, um, to map, um, hinge it onto archival map board, and then put it in a frame. And, and that has worked out really well for some of the pieces, but for other others of the pieces, um, sometimes I don't want the material behind glass all the time. I want there to be the option to experience that material without anything between you and it and so one thing is I've been magnetizing the beet papyrus to a piece of glass and then kind of constructed this wood system so that the glass is off the wall by about an inch and a half and that allows for the beet papyrus to cast a shadow on the wall and it also allows for light to come from behind um, so that's kind of the idea with the, that system is room for shadow, no material, no frame between you and the, the surface, and, um, and some natural backlighting as well. And with the magnets, it makes it temporary, and so there's kind of options.
1: Let's talk about text. You've worked a lot with text, whether producing new text embossing Mm -hmm. um even destroying text by Mm -hmm. pulverizing your junk mail what what attracts you to the written word what what kind of text do you look for why do you use words
2: (laughs) yeah um let's see the written word I think part of what's interesting to me about I wish I could read you a short story right now. (laughs) Which one? There's a short story written by Cooley Windsor and um, it is um, called 50 Blue. And in this short story, there's a fourth king who's on his way to visit the baby Jesus. And the fourth king is bringing the gift of paper. And paper is supposed to be the gift of certainty because it's this idea that once something's down on paper, it happened, right? Mm. Or the word it's it's the written word, so it will it will last longer. But um the fourth king actually gets sick and dies in the desert. And <laughs> <laughs> but he never makes it to visit the baby Jesus. And so the gift of certainty never arrives. Okay, so that said, um, with paper and with text, so often, you know, the, the idea those words are just a thin layer of ink on top. We give so much weight to those words, but they're just so barely there. And I guess I was interested as the paper became more and more sculptural to attract the eye, not with ink, but with, um, with, with light and shadow by making a cast um, or like a deeply, deeply embossed line. And I wanted to add weight back into those words so the, those words kind of become actions. And also just so you have to absorb them differently too so you, you can't just, um, they don't read completely how we're used to. Um, and then the other thing for me is it is by carving repetitively other people's handwritings it's kind of a way for me to get in touch with that time period or the context of those letters again so when I first started doing handwriting pieces it's when I was living in Inverness California and I was um, trying to imagine what the land had been like or what the occupants had been like you know, 100, 150, 200 years prior to me even, even being there. And so initially, I went into an archive to look for photographs. And the photographs were amazing. I mean, the swimsuits that they wore back then, and the cars they would drive to the beach, I mean, or uh, that was fascinating. But what I came across were these handwritten letters. And to see not images of the people, but to see their their penmanship and the way the pencil moved across the paper, and also they at the time they were employing this strategy called cross writing, which is when you would take a piece of paper, write across it one way, and then flip it, ninety degrees, and write on top of it the other way. Um, is it legible? Yeah, it's legible, and um, it's hard for us to read it because I don't think we have the. Patience, but at the time, letter writing was a form of entertainment, and as was reading your letters at night. So, like, the deciphering was part of the experience, but they also only had one sheet of paper to write on. So that way, they could get twice as much text. So they're being super economical with the strategy, but at the same time, they're not shortening their words. There's no abbreviations. They're not leaving out like Luxurious details, you know. So it's like this weird moment of efficiency and whimsy that feels like the total opposite of like us sending text messages now, you know. <laughs> um But it's interesting because now that I'm saying that out loud about the crosswriting, that's actually in my mind the that idea of laying one layer going horizontally and then the second layer on top going vertically. That's that's actually how you make papyrus with strips that's how they made it in ancient Egypt with one strip going one way and the other strip going across I hadn't thought about that but um yeah so part that's kind of what got me into text and then this idea of making the words tangible again adding weight to them light and shadow spilling across from them and like also my determination and making bringing the words into existence like I want it to be to take more work to say these things um, well,
1: did you carefully pick the segments that you were producing yeah
2: for that series or did, um, would
1: you make your own sort of
2: for the first series of text-based pieces I did I went through the letters picked the three letters that I was most intrigued by Um, the first part was the top of a letter that said dear mother just because I thought everybody would it's easy to read and it could kind of pull you in the second piece the series is called amanuensis and the second piece amanuensis 2 is just of the cross writing and it's it, you can't make out the beginning or the end of the letter but it's just this repeating kind of rhythmic pattern and I picked the one with the most wise and the most like curly tails to kind of pull you through it um, and then the third piece from that series is the an entire first page of a letter not written using cross writing but they fill in all the spaces there's no empty indentations or anything Um, anywhere like you know you'd write dear blah 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 and then you have the date on the other side Mm -hmm. and then you skip a page well they would have writing going up and down to fill those spaces but in this letter this family member talks about taking on the role of becoming the family scribe and she says that she feels like the village amanuensis where everybody would go to write to dictate their love letters to be sent out to the village maidens so there was editing like in which letters I selected. Right now I'm working on a series based on the love letters my mom wrote my dad when he was in ROTC. And for me it's interesting because I, it's just an opportunity, well, it's an opportunity where I have content, I know where the content came from, and I also have the bed sheets that my parents have had over the course of their lives. And so it's a an opportunity to actually have material and content directly linked. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times as artists, once we go beyond our personal experience, we kind of are having to guess about making those connections, but this was one chance that I have to know that the two are very in tune with each other. But then I also I made a text piece that says, it's like eight feet long, and I did a wheat pasting with it, and it says, let go lightly. And it was made in the font that Dard Hunter created by hand. He like shaped all the letters. And Dard Hunter is kind of the father of American hand paper making. He brought it back. Like uh, hand paper making in the US had kind of quickly gone, disappeared. And in the arts and crafts movement, Dard Hunter wanted to make a book, bind a book, print his own font on, with letterpress and do it all on handmade paper and that wasn't around. So he traveled to Europe, learned about handmade paper making, brought it back to the US. Yeah, so I wheat pasted LECO lightly in his font and then in my studio I have Hold On Tightly that's the same size, also in his font. And I've gone back and taken photographs of Leco Lightly every day as it disappears. And I'm making a projection to go on to hold on mm-hmm. tightly. But the letters are about this thick. Mm-hmm. And they're all made out of um, bed sheets from San Francisco thrift stores. Can you talk about other um, wheat pastings? Wheat
1: pastings that you've done?
2: Yeah. Um, well, okay. So. Yeah, my introduction, to public art, was through murals and painting the murals. And um, when I I didn't do anything like that until after my father died. And I knew that in the Jewish tradition for mourning, um, there is a public component to grief. Like you're supposed to say the mourner's kaddish, which is a mourner's prayer, amongst a group of at least 10 other people. And I thought that that was interesting that you're not supposed to grieve alone in this tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and so while I was kind of acknowledging this 11-month period for when a child mourns for their parent, it kind of drew, drew me back to doing public work. So I would wheat paste at night. So the first project, the first series that I wheat pasted was The Phases of the Moon Um, And I would go every night, and I would wheat paste a handmade piece of paper that was embossed with whatever the phase of the moon was in the sky that night. And then I did a few other series of wheat pastings. Um, One was, let's see, I, I wheat pasted a series that started off with the silhouette of Jackie O and Caroline and John Jr. at Their silhouette from John jfk's funeral and i would go back every night and i would add on one more jfk jr to the line and so by the end there were 30 long um but they were small and they were cumulative and by the time i had wheat paste one the one before might have been ripped down or covered up Um, i also did a wheat pasting of um, arrows small arrows that formed the night the wind pattern from the time when my dad died. Um, I also did a wheat pacing where I, one night I went and I wheat pasted a sailboat and then I'd go back every day and wheat paste another bird kind of circling this sailboat but it was cool it, not cool but interesting because with the handmade paper even when it gets covered up there's a texture there that is still visible so for years I could walk by the wall and run my hands over it and feel some of the wheat pastings and even so that project on let's see on May 3rd 2009 when I graduated from from school and we had our MFA show I had a large sculpture inside the gallery and then off to the side I had a mold that I had made that was about five a little bit smaller than six feet tall and I had carved out a sailboat that was about at its deepest point about five four inches deep so it's about five and a half feet and four inches deep and I had the mold leaning up against the wall but I had taken the sailboat and wheat pasted it outside the night before because I really wanted something not in the gallery um, it was a, as much about all the work was about positive space and negative space and absence and presence but So that piece, I wheat pasted on March, on on May 9th, 2009. And about two months ago, so it's now March, so let's say January 2012, I walked by and somebody had ripped down a huge chunk of the um, wall of the paper that had accumulated, and the top of that sailboat became visible again. (laughs) So it's like these layers, you know? Um, And it was interesting because with the paint, like with murals with paint, the paint layers don't have separate as separate of lives. You know, you can cover it up so much easier. But there's something about these layers of paper accumulating that are kind of more like tree rings, like cycles of growth to me. Um, But yeah, that and and I've done most, I should say, I've done most of these wheat pastings on the deappropriation wall. In San Francisco, which is on Valencia um, between 23rd and 24th Street,
1: can you say what that is for people who don't? Yeah, the
2: deappropriation wall. It's of um, like a free speech zone wall that um, it's on the side of a building owned by Bruce Toom and his architecture firm, and they are totally open to people wheat pasting on it. And in fact, they photograph and document that. I didn't know when I started working on that wall, but but I found that out later. Um, I could give you a link to there,
0: yeah. What is the value of art? Oh my gosh, <laughs> right, okay, I'm ready.
2: Well, you know, because we could tear this question up, right, and just not tear it up, but like, you know, really thinking about. Like if you do you wanna know the value of art making, do you wanna know the value of art viewing? Do I wanna know the value of a piece of art, the value of the art world? Anyways, here's what I will say. When I was in Chile, I realized not about the value, but the power of art, that there was an undeniable power to art. And I can't quantify it. There's no numbers I can give you on it. But what I can say is that if art was powerless then in a time like in the 70s during the takeover, during the coup in Chile if art was powerless then I don't understand why musicians and writers and artists and muralists would have been round up in the 70s it doesn't make sense you know so for me from that point on I I could never quantify it but I knew that there was a power to it and that if it was powerless then why would anybody put any effort into censorship so that that was kind of like the moment where I was like holy shit this there is something this goes beyond like this is big um and I think that the power of art is that it can be anything at any time it's like not quantifiable and it's not static and it could read any way in any situation and trans I think it so anything can become anything it's a, um so I don't really have the best words for it but I can I can say that it's been I've seen it in my own life the value and the power of it and, and I can see it like on a bigger scale that having a presence of art is critical so great
1: thank you so much for working with us and talking with us
2: thank you so much